Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So, here's a joke that makes me feel great. What does a nosy pepper do? Get jalapeno business. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from Issa Rae, creator of the hit web series Awkward Black Girl, and the forthcoming HBO show Insecure. Believe it or not, that was one of our favorite jokes we aired <laughs> in 2015, which is why we picked it to kick off this, our annual best of show, in which we share the greatest moments of 2015 as voted upon by you, and then ultimately decided upon by us. Yes, it's part democracy, part dictatorship around here. Mm -hmm. Coming up, we'll listen back on our chats with rocker and writer Carrie Brownstein and with Oscar Isaac, star of the sci-fi hits Ex Machina and Star Wars. Plus, we hear from performance artist Laurie Anderson, musician Shamir, and comic Michael Ian Black. But first, small talk, in which journalists tell us about odd news of the week. Here's a mashup of our favorite stories they told us, starting with this one from Atlas Obscura's Rehan Harmanzi. So the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery completed a study on what cats find most relaxing while they're in surgery. They put what I imagine are very small headphones on the cats and then randomly shuffled two-minute segments of a variety of different kinds of music, including Natalie Ambrugio's Torn, <laughs> ACDC's Thunderstruck, <laughs> and Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, Opus 11. Did anyone think that possibly ACDC was going to calm cats down for surgery? Like, that's what you put on if a cat was a relief pitcher. It's like called... the closer in a kitty baseball game. <laughs> What story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Tom Wagg, who is now 17, on a five-day work experience, which is what the British call an internship, he discovered a new planet. Two legitimate environmental wildlife groups have come up with this idea to move a thousand white rhinos from South Africa to South Texas. And they will be adopted by individual families. I'm going to be talking about the first-ever brain-powered car. I'm going to be talking about the scientific fact that we use more happy words than sad words. I'm going to be talking about South Dakota's new slogan. Their state slogan? Yeah, which is, we're better than Mars. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? A colleague of mine found the musical Hamilton is the fastest-paced musical of all time. Hamilton has 144 words per minute. Uh, For context, Pirates of Penzance has 58 words words Whoa. minute. If Hamilton was sung at the pace of Pirates of Penzance, <laughs> it would take five hours and 55 minutes to get through all of those words. I want to talk about a new super creature, the koi wolf. It's a coyote-wolf-dog hybrid. Oh my goodness. Mostly coyote, some wolf, some dog. I mean, the dog piece is actually their adaptability to cities. Oh man. They're really comfortable with people and noise. If you thought hipsters were bad, now we're in for (laughs) it. Oh, those coyote-wolves are gentrifying everything. (laughs) They already have beards. And now, time for cocktails. This is where we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our famed history lesson with booze. And here's our favorite history of the year. It's a tribute to a man born back in 1949 who helped revolutionize space exploration, the military, and pool parties. As always, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Inventor Lonnie Johnson will probably be remembered for the least important thing he ever made. 
First, some background. Born in Mobile, Alabama, Lonnie took a quick interest in mechanics and science. The kind of kid who set the family kitchen on fire when he tried to whip up a batch of homemade rocket fuel. Still, as an African-American growing up in the segregated South, Lonnie wasn't encouraged to achieve much, but he did anyway, earning a master's in nuclear engineering. He went on to design circuitry for NASA's Galileo mission to Jupiter and also worked on a little Air Force project called the Stealth Bomber. But it was a humbler gadget that accidentally made Lonnie a fortune. A heat pump he designed in his spare time that used water instead of Freon. One day, testing a prototype in his bathroom, the gizmo shot a powerful stream of water into the tub. His first thought, quote, this'd make a great squirt gun. He called it the power drencher. The name didn't stick, but the toy did. Renamed the Super Soaker, it hit stores in 1989 and has since racked up around $2 billion in sales. The Super Soaker 100. It's a water gun of a higher caliber. With the proceeds, Lonnie formed his own company. They're now working on an engine that'd create solar power as efficiently as coal power, thereby saving the planet. Now, if it also lets you drench your little brother from 60 feet away, they might be onto something. All right, so that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Emmy Binshot. She is bartender at Noble South, a bar in Mobile, Alabama, the birthplace of Lonnie Johnson. And Emmy, you heard the history. What story does that inspire you to make? Well, I kind of wanted to do a big southern spinoff of a Long Island iced tea. Okay. Um, How come that? Well, to me, a super soaker speaks of excess. (laughs) And whenever someone wants to, you know, feel the effects of alcohol fairly quickly, (laughs) they usually order a Long Island iced tea. (laughs) It's like a super soaker of booze. Exactly. Never think of that drink the same way again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So uh, I'd ask you to list what's in a Long Island iced tea, but I think it's basically everything on the liquor shelf. So let's just see what you did with it. What does your drink have? So predominantly Midori. I put 27 Springs vodka and gin. That's an Alabama label. Uh-huh. Then I put yellow chartreuse in there instead of tequila to give a little bit of an edge. This is still proving to be a very high power drink. You were correct. Yes. You're going to feel it. So you're going to mix that with some muddled cucumber, fresh lime, a little bit of simple syrup, shake it really well, pour it over fresh ice in a pint glass, and top it with sparkling water. So if you're pouring this into a pint glass in a way, it almost looks like the kind of pill-shaped barrel that sits on top of the super soaker. Is that right? That's what I was going for. It was actually something big. And And it has a lot of volume. Exactly. (laughs) One thing, though, I was kind of hoping that you would do something to represent the rocket fuel that he made as a kid. That's funny. I actually thought about doing a crushed pop rock rim. (laughs) I thought that would be kind of fun. So it has a little blasting cap effect. (laughs) Another thing, is it possible... Could you actually rig a bar gun so that it could fire this into a customer's mouth? That would be awesome. Is that even possible? Probably not, but (laughs) (laughs) it's worth a shot. (laughs) 
Emmy Binshot of the bar Noble South in Mobile, Alabama, our favorite and probably the most dangerous cocktail of 2015. Oh. No word yet on whether she's perfected the bar gun super soaker. Gosh, I hope not. For humanity's sake. Folks, you'll find that recipe and all our cocktail recipes of the year at dinnerpartydownload.org. Time to eavesdrop. This is the part of the show where we overhear a storyteller share a party-worthy tale. This year we heard from the likes of Booker Prize winner Marlon James and filmmaker Miranda July, but our favorite came from musician and performance artist Lori Anderson. In her long career, she's worked with Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, and her late husband Lou Reed. She was also NASA's first-ever artist-in-residence. Earlier this year, as her acclaimed film Heart of a Dog hit theaters, she stopped by to tell a stormy tale. Hi, this is Lori Anderson, and here's a story from a collection called Transitory Life. A few years ago, I'd been working a lot in the studio, and I I was getting very burned out on all this equipment. So I was looking for places where they didn't use any technology at all. I happened to be in western Pennsylvania, and I ran into some Amish people at a farmer's market. And they were selling vegetables and bread, and they all looked so incredibly relaxed and happy, just standing there with their arms at their sides, kind of peaceful and smiling, like, if you wanted to buy their bread, that was fine, and if you didn't, that was fine too. And I thought, wow, I wonder what it's like to live that way. Now, for a lot of them, time stopped back in the early 16th century and they haven't used anything invented in the last four and a half hundred years. They just still use wheels and wind. So I was hanging around with them, and I asked if I could come and help out and do some weeding or cleaning up on their farm, and they said, sure, why not? That, yeah, that'd be great. That, that'd be wonderful. And when I got to the farm, it started to rain, and it rained nonstop for days. And the family I stayed with was a couple and their son and a newborn who never stopped crying. And so we all sat around the kitchen table, listening to the rain and the crying, and waiting for the weather to change. Once in a while, the rain would stop, and we'd run out and pull a weed or two, and then it was back to the kitchen table. Now, actually, I kind of like sitting around kitchen tables, but I'd never done it for days on end, and I was finding it kind of hard to remember why I'd wanted to come out there in the first place. The longer I was there, the more obvious it was I might have come at kind of a bad time, because basically there was always an argument going on. Now, I've seen grudges, and I've seen the slow burn of rage, but I'd never seen anything like this before, this kind of slow-motion fury. The woman would suddenly look up and she'd say, David! You know I asked you never to speak to me in that way again. But since no one had said anything for hours, it seemed like kind of a weird thing to say. So I would look over at the husband, and there was no reaction. He was like tuned to another station. And it would be another hour or so before he answered her with some equally bitter comeback. Then one afternoon, their three-year-old named Aguilan, which is Spanish for North Wind, began a temper tantrum that went on for hours 
and his mother is holding him and he's kicking her in the face and screaming. She's saying, now, Aguilan, you know that we agreed that if you would just stop kicking mommy in the head, we would revise our agreement about suspending your privileges for next week and on and on like that. And I'm thinking, what does she think this is? The UN? I mean, this kid is trying to kill her. And I thought, you know, this is just never going to end. And then a dense fog rolled in and we're back to sitting at the table staring at each other. Then one day, the grandma came to visit, and she joined us around the table, and she kept saying to Aguilan, Now, Aguilan, give grandma a kiss. Will you just give her a kiss? Come on, just one kiss. And he's on the spot now, and I can see the look in his eyes, and it's the wary, hunted look of someone who suddenly realizes he's about to be tricked. But she keeps saying, When will you kiss grandma? When will you kiss her? And she's repeating this over and over like a loop. And finally he mumbles, I'll kiss you when we're in the living room. Which I guess seems pretty safe to him since we've been in the kitchen for several days now. A couple of hours later, we're all actually in the living room. And the mood has darkened even more. And she says, well, Aguilan, we're in the living room now, waiting for her part of the deal. And the deal he'd made slowly comes back to him. And you can watch him remember it. And he drags himself over in slow motion and puts his mouth to her cheek. And I'm watching it happen. A tiny boy who had just learned to kiss without affection. To kiss as a form of payment. As part of a deal. Laurie Anderson, her film Heart of a Dog came out this year. It's been nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, and I'm sure there's more where that came from. Indeed. By the way, this is a song of hers from the soundtrack. It's called The Lake. All right, coming up, Carrie Brownstein, Oscar Isaac, and more when the Dinner Party Downloads Best of 2015 show continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and you're listening to our special Best of 2015 episode. Coming up, comedian Michael Ian Black gives our audience etiquette advice while insulting them. <laughs> but first, let's listen back to our talk with Carrie Brownstein. That's right. Back in 1994, she co-founded Slater Kinney, an all-woman rock trio that made a huge impact on critics and the indie rock scene. Their record, Dig Me Out, landed on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time. Then in 2006, Carrie left the group and, along with comedian Fred Armisen, co-created the hit sketch comedy show Portlandia. This fall, she released a memoir called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. The title comes from one of her song lyrics. In fact, the whole book is filled with musical references. So when we spoke, I played her a few of the songs she mentions as influences, starting with this one. Madonna was my very first concert in 1985 Mm. and she actually started the tour in Seattle which is where I was living in the the suburbs and she did three shows of which I saw the first Uh, I asked my parents if I could wear a wedding dress to the show 
because that was what she's wearing, I think, in that video, yeah. you know, which was sort of controversial at the time. And uh, anyway, my parents disallowed me from that option, which I'm now grateful for. <laughs> so the suburb you grew up in was Redmond, Washington. And it, it sounds like your parents supported you in your interest in music. Yeah. I don't think they were worried that I was going to go down some dark path of being unethical. A debauched young kid. Yeah, I, I was pretty square. Your parents also were dealing with their own stuff at the time, right? We learn in your We learn, book That yes. they were attentive and loving to you, but they were in different ways struggling with kind of identity issues. You yeah. talk very openly about your mother's struggle with anorexia when you were a kid. Everything kind of changed at the end of elementary school. So everything leading up to that was actually one version of my childhood. And, and starting when I was 13 and 14, that's when things started to change in my mother's illness, which we found out was anorexia, although empirically we also could have determined that it was anorexia. Mm. That really shifted things in my family pretty drastically. And you talk in the book quite openly about how your mother's hospitalization kind of gave you a sense of identity. You know, you received special treatment from your friend's parents. It kind of sounds like you became a little adult yourself. Something about my mother being in the hospital, I kind of reached out to my friend's parents. It's it's when I first began looking for what you might call surrogates, you know, mm-hmm. just somebody else to kind of be my mentor or yeah. a, a guide or just somebody that was paying attention to me because what, of course, starts to happen when you have a parent that is ill is you're kind of left alone in the world in some ways because they're dealing with their own things. And then you're, if you have both parents, usually the the spouse is also dealing with that. So yeah, I would, my friends were not that interested in me as I was kind of drifting away from the kind of sporty popular kids, but their moms, as I discuss in the book, really loved talking to me. And I was a very precocious, I mean, I would dare to say a little bit annoying (laughs) kid at that point. So around that time, you also got into rock and roll and punk rock, including this band, Bikini Kill which was an all-woman band from the town of Olympia, Washington, which was just a couple hours south from where you grew up. Let's hear a clip of that. So it holds up so well. Yeah. So you talk about a lot of bands in this book, but Bikini Kill was special for you. Yeah, I heard Bikini Kill when I was still in high school. Uh, I first heard them on uh, compilations. There was um, a label from Olympia called Kill Rockstars, and they put out these comps. And I started to realize that there was this whole scene going on in Olympia called Riot Girl. It didn't necessarily describe the music, but it described kind of a marriage of feminism, you know, within the context of this punk rock. And as someone that wasn't studying feminism and didn't really know about it through academia at the time, that marriage was very powerful because it, it kind of took it out of the academic realm. It put it in plain language. Uh, it was very forceful. It allowed me for the first time to hear an experience that, that I felt but hadn't yet to be able to articulate. Mm. You know, when you just hear your own stories sung back to you and there's just this feeling of recognition that I think cannot be underestimated for making one feel whole. So yeah, Bikini Hill and then Heavens to Betsy, uh, which uh, Corin Tucker, who ends up being in Slater Kinney with me, that was her first band. They, I think, had some of the best songs and great, great singing. I think what's interesting about your story is you're a kid listening to this music 
you're enjoying it, you're following it in zines, but then you just willed yourself into that world. Like not only do you end up moving to Olympia and getting to know these bands, you actually end up being in a band with one of the people you admire the most. And that band, of course, is Slater Kinney. So you'd been at that point, you know, you'd been playing in some bands, you'd toured the US a couple times, but then this band takes off. It introduces a new sound to the kind of rock canon. Famously, Real Marcus in two thousand one called called you America's greatest rock band. <laughs> Much to everyone's surprise at the time in this very mainstream magazine. You know, and I as I mentioned Bryant Gumble, you know, who was the host of the Today Show. Yeah, he the next day he was talking about the issue and just said, "Who the heck is this band?" Yeah, and, why? and uh, that's <laughs> well, why Grail is so great. He was always championing the, an underdog. But the media wasn't so nice to you. And your your first that you write about your first coverage was from Spin Magazine, which was kind of a painful moment. Yeah, uh, the very first article uh, written about us, and at the time, like a very influential music publication, uh, Spin Magazine, in the nineties was really kind of giving Rolling Stone a run for its money, yeah. you know. And anyway, we were very excited to, you know, we did a, a photo shoot for the magazine, did an interview, and um, this interview uh, ended up essentially outing me. Very very early on when Corn and I started the band, we dated for, you know, about a year. And we had never, our, our friends knew, yeah. uh, but we, we never talked about it with our families. We weren't out to them as people that dated, you know, yeah. other women as queer. And um, I remember... My dad calling me and saying he'd seen the article. This is pre-internet, so you know you don't get a preview of something. No yeah. one's no one's emailing me, you a JPEG like, oh, this is coming out on Tuesday, so no warning. Yeah, yeah, it just hits on <laughs> it hits on the stands. Yeah, my dad calls, says he's read the article, and and says that is there something you want to tell me? I had no idea. I had not seen the article yet. Oh. So essentially, without checking with Corn or I, and neither of us had discussed it in the interview, the writer um, mentioned that we had dated. Yeah, it was at the time. Very disorienting to not be given the opportunity to author my own narrative, you know, tell my parents about who I am on my own and on my own terms. It was um, very unsettling. And that wasn't the only aspect of being in a band that was unsettling to you. Eventually, the touring life and the strain on personal relationships all became too much. And it seemed like it all reached ahead for you at one particular show in Belgium in 2006. Sure. I mean, it's it's a dark moment for sure. And, I, I you know, I think so much of my book is, is about trying to assemble a, a version of family, you know, to, to transfer and, and substitute and, and find a sturdiness that I thought I sort of had with Slater-Kinney. And in some ways I did. But at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't enough, that I, I hadn't built up the architecture that, that I needed to stand upon, that there was, you know, still such a fragility and vulnerability. And it kind of all came to a head, a combination of physical illness and, and then just uh, depression and anxiety in Belgium. And I ended up basically hitting myself um, multiple times in front of my bandmates before our like show. Right before you're about to go on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was an, an act of self-destruction, self-effacement. I wanted to erase myself yeah. and the pain that I, that I felt and, and the sadness and, and the loss. Yeah. And in that moment, I lost the band. 
Yeah. You had a couple of goodbye shows. You announced the hiatus. Uh, and then you took a really big break that lasted until just this January, nine years. So what happened in the meantime that made you feel like you could return? Yeah, there was a big break. And I think, you know, the most sort of visible and obvious thing that I did was co-create Portlandia with Fred Armisen. I think that helped me return to music and return to Slater Kinney because it allowed for a kind of creativity that had absurdism to it, mm-hmm. that had levity, that was able to actually kind of look at some of the same situations. I see the seeds for Portlandia in a lot of these stories about Olympia. Oh, and, yeah. In the dogma and in oh, the yeah. trying to assess how it felt to be part of a scene that espoused inclusion, but yeah. felt very elite and exclusive. I think through that, you know, I was able to return to music mm. in a way that felt holistic and just it reinvigorated. From punk rock to satire, Carrie Brownstein, thanks so much for coming by and chatting with us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again. Carrie Brownstein, speaking last fall about her memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, Slater Kinney regrouped this year and released a new album called No Cities to Love. Time, Rolling Stone, and Pitchfork all named it one of the best albums of the year. And folks, if you miss something in culture this year, you'll probably find it in past episodes of our show. Find them at dinnerpartydownload.org or on iTunes. All right, and now we pivot from punk rock to manners, as one does. That's right. Each week, we invite a celebrity to answer etiquette questions. And this year, our cast of advisors included Alice Cooper, Oscar the Grouch, Fran Drescher, and my favorite smooth jazz giant, Kenny G., who answered one query with his saxophone. But this year, our listeners' favorite came from a live show we taped at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, After hearing a lovely set from musician Angel Olsen, comedian Michael Ian Black alternately advised and castigated our audience to their eternal delight. Michael made a name for himself, of course, as part of the sketch comedy troupe The State, and he starred in the cult film Wet Hot American Summer, rebooted this year as a series on Netflix. This year, he also launched a podcast called How to Be Amazing. The Fitzgerald audience lined up to pose Michael questions, starting with a guy calling himself Minneapolis Sean, who asked about proper snacking etiquette during car trips. Car snacks. It depends. First of all, if it's your car, you want to avoid chocolate. If it's not your car, chocolate's fine. So assuming it's not your car and you're on a long trip, Essentially, anything that you could find at a gas station convenience store is fair game. So any sort of chip, any sort of pickle, uh, any sort of week or two-week-old donut or confectionery. They don't crumble as much. No, so really a a, a quart of motor oil, anything is fine. If you can find it in a gas station convenience store. What about beef snacks? Oh, beef snacks are, are yes, by far. You, you, you eat all the beef snacks you want. Don't eat any fresh fruit. <laughs> all right. Fresh, anything healthy is off the table for a car ride. Okay. Does question. that answer your question? Cheers. Yeah. I guess right. so. He's going well away he goes. Well done. Minneapolis Sean. That's a good question. Gentlemen. I feel like you helped out a lot of people with that one. All right. So next. Right, now, good evening. Before we continue, is that a ponytail you're sporting? Yes. Uh, something like that, yes. So you know you're already broken all etiquette. <laughs> I, I can live with that. I'm, fine. So I'm not here to be nice. I'm here to give advice. <laughs> Sometimes to, it hurts. You're here to tell the truth. You've got to be cruel to be kind. 
So the question I have, yeah. uh, should we applaud when performers first come to the stage? Uh, since they have not done anything yet, I thought applause was meant to be an appreciation for a performance well done. Ah, right. It depends on circumstance. Now, if you're going to see a play, for me, I always find it distracting when a, an actor of some renown comes on yeah. in character and the audience applauds. To me, that's a no-no. However, there is an exception. If it's an older actor or actress, somebody who's been around a long time, uh, then you might want to give them the applause because they might not make it to the end of the play. <laughs> or even intermission. Get it in while you yeah, can. Get it is in what now. You're yeah. you need to celebrate Show, show your appreciation yeah. to Cloris Leachman because yeah. she's not going to be here that much longer. <laughs> yeah. But don't just, do it too loudly or you may induce yeah, a heart attack. Yeah, they'll so. just like, oh my God. You don't want to startle her. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. So I hope that helps. On the other hand, if it's, a, if it's a, like a comedy performance or a band or something like that where the person isn't in character, then by all means. Like, for example, when I came out and everybody gave me a standing ovation, I thought, <laughs> I thought that was just great. <laughs> does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, right, it does. Good question. Thank you. That was a good question. I think Steven. that's more than puts it to you. Hi. Hi. I'm Genevieve. Hi, Genevieve. Hi. I'm Michael. Okay, my question is... We mean um, okay. <laughs> What happened in Minnesota? Nice, jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your question, Genevieve? Okay, my question is, um, if you borrow a friend's car and it has a near empty tank of gas, when you return it, should you fill it up, fill it half full? Um, because it sort of seems kind of like a passive aggressive way to get your gas tank full. <laughs> That is an evil thing to ascribe to someone who loaned you a car. So you've borrowed, you've borrowed the car, yeah. and you're unhappy with the amount of gas that's in the car. Exactly. You said, can I borrow your car? Yeah. They've said, sure, Genevieve, we love you. You get in the car, you see it's on like a quarter tank, and you go, those mother <laughs> I think that's what happened. Knowing you the way I do, Genevieve. <laughs> This is what I think you do. You fill the car with gas, then you get maybe three or four of those five-gallon uh, gas containers that you, you can buy. Fill those with gas. <laughs> Put those in the back seat. Drive the car, when you return it, drive it through their living room window. Uh-huh. And just say, here! Yep. See? That's the polite, That's the thing, polite to do. thing to do. Thank that you. would be the polite thing to do. There you go. It's the manners. Yeah. Michael and Black teaching you some manners. All right. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Good luck, sir. No oh, one has left. <laughs> no one has left the line. I'm pretty impressed. I think they're responding. We're, to we're all too scared to move. Out of this <laughs> yeah. Line. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm Hi, Zach. In, from Minneapolis. Hi. Um, how does one? That's in how you do it, Genevieve. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you do it. We're quick learners here. <laughs> How does one invite Angel Olsen to join us at the entry to see Young Fathers perform tonight? Oh, so wait, where, where, who, wait, Young Fathers? Is the band. That's, I, I, okay, yeah. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a band, and where are they performing? At the 7th Street entry. It's in Minneapolis. It's, uh, Angel! <laughs> you guys can come if you want, but. Here, I understand. Wow. Is, is the idea that Angel is your date? I don't yeah. know if I can do that. I would say Angel, uh, Zach from Minneapolis. <laughs> Great kid. You know him? I know him well. He knows how to say hi. He knows how to say hi like a champ. <laughs> There's the band here Tell that I can't get enough of. Okay. <laughs> They're called the Young Fathers. 
Yeah, I just and, heard about him. Yeah, everybody's talking about him. <laughs> They're playing at the entry, which is yeah. a great place tonight. Cool. <laughs> and Zach wants to know if you'll you. if you'll go. Maybe. I have a car. Yeah, we have a car. You have a car. Yeah. We how how full is the gas tank? Very. <laughs> <laughs> Super full. Okay. Right. Super full gas tank. She'll be there, Zach. She'll I'll, be there. I'll think about it. I'll Thank think you. about it. Okay. You'll think about it. Thank you. Thank you. Think about it. Thanks, Angel. That was well done. I'm pretty smooth. Yeah. And that was a polite way to say no effing way. <laughs> All right. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. I'm having my first baby. And Congratulations. I have... Congratulations. <laughs> yes. soon, soon there will be another young father. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, my friend is throwing me a baby shower, and I have no idea how to behave at such an event, mm -hmm. so I'm looking for a list of do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts at a baby shower. So it's your friend, and, she, and she's graciously offered to throw you the baby shower. She's so here. do say, oh my God, thank you so much for throwing me a baby shower. Right. <laughs> yeah. Don't have the baby at the baby shower. Oh. Yeah. Listen that would to be him. rude. Yeah. Those are pretty Stick clear. to those two things. Yeah. I think you'll yeah. be fine. All right. Thank you. Uh, that's fantastic. Bye. So I, I'm looking at the time. I think we should do a speed round here because we want to get to all of okay. you. Okay. All right. We'll be quick. So we've got Amy and Andrew here from St. Paul, and we just recently moved to the area, and we were looking to find out, even though you don't necessarily want a real friendship with your new neighbors... How can you express that you're willing to get the mail or something like that when they're out of town, but also don't want them stopping by to chat neighborhood politics if you're enjoying a <laughs> bottle of wine on the front porch? That's a good I question. got this. All right. Okay, all right. go. Thank goodness. So you just move. What you want to do is you want to take the initiative. Make a dish and bring it over, but make it a terrible dish. Oh, good idea. <laughs> there you go. Yep. I, I brought you quinoa and pastrami. <laughs> Michael Ian Black taped live in St. Paul, Minnesota's Fitzgerald Theater earlier this year. And if that sounded fun, you're in luck. We've got a plethora of live shows in the works for the new year, including one in L.A. January 28th. Yes, actor Jason Schwartzman and musician Father John Misty are among our guests. Tickets are going fast. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org for details. Meanwhile, stick around to hear from Oscar Isaac and Shamir when the best of the Dinner Party Download 2015 continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and this is our Best of 2015 episode. In a few minutes, dance rocker Shamir DJs your dinner party. But first, let's hear another of our listeners' favorite interviews of the year. Yes, it's actor Oscar Isaac. He first landed on people's radar as the title character in the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. He also appeared in Nicholas Winding Refn's Moody Noir Drive. Earlier this year, he earned raves for his starring role in the film A Most Violent Year. And oh yeah, you can see him now as Poe Dameron in a movie called, uh, wait a second, let me check the title, Star Wars The Force Awakens. I heard some rumblings about that one this week. Oh really? Crickets over here. It's uh, just a little indie thing. But in spring, I spoke to Oscar about the smart sci-fi thriller Ex Machina. In it, he played Nathan, a moody billionaire tech genius who invites a coder named Caleb to meet his new invention, a beautiful robot woman. He wants Caleb to question her and judge if she is truly artificially intelligent and self-aware. I asked if he'd based his performance on any real-life characters. 
I got inspired actually by Bobby Fischer was, was one person that I found that I thought, well, this is a guy who clearly had a brilliant mind, was street smart, uh, self-taught, had deep misanthropic feelings, was an angry guy. This would be the chess champion, of course, yeah. Bobby Fischer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and he actually had an, an Olympic trainer, which was amazing, while he was preparing for his chess battles. Which is interesting, because your character is very physical for an intellectual techie guy. Exactly. He's, you know, he's almost gratuitously working out in the film. So, yeah, him and then and then Kubrick was another guy that I thought of. Both of these guys happen to be from the Bronx as well. The director, Stanley Kubrick, you based your look a little bit on him? And, and, uh, and speech pattern. There's a few recordings when he was younger and again someone else that was great at chess was quite mysterious and a genius I mean had a brilliant mind for details and you could see was thinking so many moves ahead you know so so those glasses and the way that Kubrick would kind of look over his glasses at people with those big owl eyes and that bald head and the beard uh, that was definitely a, a visual inspiration for me as well all really interesting choices because when I think of you know billionaire tech geniuses, I think of Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. But Nathan is a damaged, darker, misanthropic individual. I think he knows he's creating something that could signify the end for us. I think he anticipates that at some point, one of these things is going to escape. <laughs> and that will be the proof that he's created something hyper-intelligent, not only self-aware, but super self-aware. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. There you go again, Mr. Quotable. There you go again. It's not my quote what Oppenheimer said after he made the, the atomic, atomic bomb. bomb. Yeah, I know what it is, dude. Well, this brings up something I wanted to address, actually. The sci-fi movie Chappie came out a few weeks back. So you've got these two movies coming out at the same time about artificial intelligence. One of them, in Chappie, the you know artificial intelligence is our savior. In this one, it might be at the end of us. Which side do you fall on? I'm not the most optimistic about, about uh, what humans create and their control over those creations. I think... I have a slightly more pessimistic view of where we're headed as far as the destruction of mankind. <laughs> All right, well, then you ended up in the right film. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But I think that that's uh, one of the lesser questions of the film. I think ultimately, for me, was the question that the construction of something that's self-aware forces you to ask about the nature of human consciousness. You know, like what is it, maybe? Exactly. Not, not only what is it, but is it even special? Is it, a, is it just a phenomenon of uh, accumulating stimulus? And the idea of experience and how you, one can never know if uh, your experience is completely alien to mine. We can try to describe it to each other, but we just have no idea if we uh, feel the same way about existence. Yeah, that philosophical idea that there is a, a true objective reality, but all we can see of it are shadows of it playing out on the walls of our little individual caves. Exactly, yeah, which is, there's even a, an allusion to that in, in one of the final shots of the film with these uh, shadows walking on the floor. I didn't even make that connection. That is genius. Oh, man, how are we going to get this across to a radio audience? <laughs> there, are, there is an image of shadows on the floor. I did not think of that kind of philosophical concept. And, and, but it's true. There is only subjective. I mean, it's, it's only what we are able to process inside our, our little machines in here. Should I roll another joint? Should I? <laughs>
Um, turning from trippy to maybe more political matters, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, roles for minorities in Hollywood. You are of Cuban and Guatemalan background, but I've noticed about half your roles, including this one and some of the others you're maybe best known for, your background really isn't even a factor. Is this maybe an indication that things are getting better? Probably not. Uh, Come on. I'm looking for hope here. <laughs> you're asking the wrong dude. No, I mean, look, yes, there there, there are. I, it's tough because I have been very fortunate in, in, in those regards. I've had a lot of opportunity to play vastly different people, but it hasn't just been luck. I've been very active in making sure that, you know, for instance, when I get a, a script, if the script, you know, describes the character as Latin or whatever ethnicity it might be, my very first thing is to take that away and to see what's there. Because often what happens is you get characters that are quite bland, that the only interesting thing about them is that they're exotic and they're from some sort of weird place, you know, and that they that they speak funny or that they have funny cultural things and maybe uh, passionate or something, you know, <laughs> or bad-tempered or something, you know. And so, they like food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They like food and family. Yeah. So, so that's one of the first things I'll do, just to make sure that the, it's not just something that's being stamped on it to make it more interesting or to, you know, to fill some quota or something. And, and in, in the past, for instance, Drive was one that I had gotten where I passed on that one because I just felt that the character was a cliche and, you know, he was just written as this gangster, this thug that was horrible to his family, lived a life of crime, and then you just wanted him to die so the white people could get together, you know. But you could argue the whole point of that movie is to take these intense kind of noirish stereotypes, these masculine stereotypes, and push them all the way to the limit. You know, the evil gangster, the stone-faced hero. Yeah, but as an actor, you don't want to play a stereotype, even if, it, if, even if the film wants to explore that. So what, uh, what Nick Reffin said to me, is like, all right, well, if it could be anything, what would it be? And so we sat for about four hours, and we decided to make him uh, a tragic character, maybe someone who made a couple bad decisions, but who actually loved his family and was trying to do the right thing, but gets caught up in violence and... And it actually makes it more dramatically interesting. There's more conflict there. So, you know, it's a process of also being able to say no, even when the project seems great, because it's perpetuating something. You know, we had J.C. Shandor on the show who directed you in A Most Violent Year. And he said that he wanted to tell an immigrant story that wasn't the standard immigrant story. I imagine that was the appeal of that character. A absolutely. Yeah, that character. In fact, he was so idiosyncratic and strange in how much he wanted to erase his past, you know, even you know, forcing his workers to speak English. And, and I wouldn't say that was necessarily a positive trait, but it speaks to this kind of capitalist idea in this country where, you know, the idea was you come to this country, you shed your ethnic robes and put on a power suit and go make some money, damn it. And so, yeah, I, I kind of liked this character who also happened to be from Latin America, and, and that informs who he is. But it's not the most interesting part of them. I'm going to ask you our two standard questions we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Uh, what happens in the new Star Wars movie? <laughs> Actually, here's, I, I had a, a question prepared for you. I know you can't tell us that. But if you had to sum up the entire plot in one word, what would it be? Yeah, don't ask me that at the party, okay? Just <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Not even that. I thought you could give me okay. just a cryptic word okay, that sure. then people could debate endlessly online. Don't. <laughs> All right. And our second question is sort of the flip of that, which is tell us something we don't know. You know, like the plot of the new Star Wars. 
Uh, something. My sister used to dress me up as a girl and call me Raisin. Did you enjoy that? I mean, was it fun? I think it started my theatrical career. Is that true? Probably. Actually, this reminds me of uh, something that you said in an interview. I don't know if what you just told me is an example of this, but you said that a major part of acting is humiliation. I was having a bad day that day, wasn't I? Uh, no, actually, there, there is a little bit of that. There is. You, you, I think that's what makes it an extreme sport. <laughs> you know, the potential for physical damage, for physical uh, pain is very low but the potential for psychic (laughs) pain you know to the ego is mortal so it's like yeah it's like bullfighting you know yeah that's why actors do all sorts of weird stuff before they have to act or demand strange things or have to get themselves into strange places because it's like gearing up for a bullfight you know you go out there and you are completely exposed to the dangers of complete humiliation and when you're able to get past that and to start acting truthfully, regardless of how silly you look, it also is incredibly exhilarating. Oscar Isaac, he no longer has to keep any secrets about his role in Star Wars The Force Awakens because it's playing now on more or less every movie screen on Earth. And now, let's wrap up this Best of 2015 party with some music. All right, and our favorite party DJ of the year was Pop Phenom Shamir, and that rhymes. His androgynous voice and killer hooks landed him a record deal just out of high school. Pitchfork called his latest album Ratchet, quote, a study in the best dance pop of the past decade. Here's his list of music to dine by. Hey, this is Shamir, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song would be Party Police by Always. actually played this at a dinner party back when I was in Vegas with my friends. Very chill, very mid-tempo song, but it's also not too soft of a song to like fall asleep on your plate. <laughs> I love to cook a lot. I kind of have like a very maternal spirit about me. Like, I just want to comfort people with food. So I guess I would say what's on the menu, which would definitely be lengua empanadas. And lengua is tongue in Spanish. So usually that throws a lot of people off. And it's a lot of steps to cook, but it's totally worth it. For my second song, I would play Nico with the Velvet Underground, her song Chelsea Girl, a classic. Honestly, I just love Nico's voice. I just love how deep it is and her accent. If I didn't have my own voice, I would probably want hers. Here's room 546. It's enough to make you sick. Bridget's all wrapped up in foil, you wonder if... My favorite part of the song, which is funny because it's the part that I read that she hated, was the flute. I think the flute is so beautiful in that song. Even the way the string arrangement is. Very staccato and like you're creeping. It's a very haunting song and um, it kind of sounds like... 
the soundtrack to a dinner party at the Adams family's house. For my third song, I would pick You and I by Wilco and Feist. You and I We might be strangers However close we get sometimes I was working at Ross Department Stores in the fitting room, so there was a lot of standing around just like listening to whatever they played over the intercom, and um, that song was definitely on every rotation on the playlist. I actually remember this one time. This one lady was in the fitting room for such a long time and I almost forgot that she was in there. So I was singing my butt off, but um, eventually she came out and I was like, oh my God. She's like, you have a beautiful voice. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> My fourth song would definitely be Demon off my album Ratchet. The honor road was all I know till you took me over to the dark side. I, know, I guess I wanted to kind of like make my voice sound a little bit more eerie. It's like always so weird when I'm describing my own voice because, I mean, I know it's different, but it's just the only voice I ever had, you know? I guess it just made do with what I have. <laughs> and I've gone and sold my soul. Party soundtrack from Shamir. His debut album, Ratchet, came out this year on XL Records. And folks, that concludes the Dinner Party Downloads Best of 2015 show. Thanks for listening these last 12 months. Yes, indeed. We know that the world faces some serious challenges in the new year, but it's our humble goal to keep reminding you of all the artists and creators out there making beautiful things. Right on. We hope to do more in 2016. And we couldn't do it without the help of our producer, Jackson Musker, associate producer, Nina Patak, and associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Also, our executive producer, Larissa Anderson, and this week's engineer, Daniel Ramirez. Lastly, this year, we welcome new listeners in New York, D.C., Atlanta, Phoenix, many other great towns. Welcome, everyone. There's no curfew. Till next time, bon appétit.